0: Welcome back to Finessing Your Finances with Baruch Labinski on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Baruch, last time we talked about making a plan for Aliyah, and we said that this time we're going to discuss once you get off that flight. Last time we talked about budgeting, we talked about networking, we talked about trying to find employment while you're still in Chutzlar, it's outside of Israel. Now you're on the ground in Israel, and it's time to live out the Aliyah dream. But financially, obviously, there are many concerns a person has once he arrives. When a person gets off the plane, has his cup of coffee, and now says, I'm ready to be an Israeli, what's the first thing he should do, having made his plan in the States?
1: Assuming they have a plan in hand, assuming they know where they're going, things like housing shouldn't be a surprise to them. I think that the biggest mistake that people make is that they don't keep track properly of their finances over that period of time. What do you mean? So you can have a budget in advance, but a budget is useless if it's not used to create feedback, and to give you information to help you make decisions. The biggest advice, I guess, the, the most important piece of advice I would give to Olim is that they should be tracking their expenses against their plan and making adjustments in that first six months to a year.
0: They're always gonna be surprises, right?
1: There are always going to be surprises. There are always going to be adjustments that they need to make. All the assumptions that I made when I was in Chutzlaritz are basic assumptions in order to help me plan but they might not come true. I might have assumed that I was going to be six months without a job, and I might have a job immediately, or the opposite. I might have budgeted six months for OPAN, and it might take me a year to find a job. I need to keep track of what's going on because there is a tremendous amount of money that is flowing through the system, and you need to have your, your finger on the pulse about what's happening to avoid too great a surprise. What does that mean in particular? What should a person do? I would recommend really tracking it. People don't know what they're spending. I, unfortunately, I see this too often that people will come in and I'll ask them, what have you been spending? What's going on? How can we like improve things? And they just don't even know. So the most basic thing they is- They just see the money's
0: going yeah, out of their account.
1: They see the money's going out or they know that their savings ha- have been going down, but they don't really know why. And they don't know whether it's one-time expenses or are they ongoing expenses and a, and a certain standard of living that they've created here or that they've continued from the United States that is not realistic for them they really have to know and maybe that's a a really important distinction which is distinguishing between one-time expenses versus what the ongoing standard of living is here and the only way that you're going to know that is if you keep track of things if you actually look back at the end of the month i tell people all the time go and sit down at the end of the month set up a date with your wife make some popcorn and go through your budget, go through your expenses and just kind of look at what happened, summarize it because it's meant to help you make decisions going forward. And it's very different if you, let's say you have a budget of $5,000 a month and you went over it, And now you're spending eight, but out of the eight, three thousand of them were literally one-time expenses because you need to buy some furniture, and because you have another, you know, one-time, one-off expenses. That's very, very different than if you created a budget where the eight thousand are ongoing, as they call shotef expenses here in Israel.
0: And I assume that people from the states or from Canada who are coming to Israel, who before this it's almost intuitive. They know they've been doing this for years. They know what it is. They don't even realize how much things might have changed. Yeah, they're writing the check, but the overall effect needs to be tracked or else they'll be very surprised.
1: Yeah. And the financial system is very different here. You can't expect that the finances are going to be similar to how things work in the United States. You can't expect that the way the credit card system works, the way people make just day-to-day payments, everything really is quite different here. Israel has a very unique financial system. And so you have to take that step back and really evaluate where I'm holding and what's working, what's not working, what do I need to adjust to help you really go forward with a better plan, an adjusted plan.
0: You know, speaking of an adjusted plan, this might take us a little bit off topic, but it does lead to an interesting question, which I'm sure is a big problem for many Olim who have money in dollars, American or Canadian, which is that the American dollar in particular has been weakening, corresponding to the shekel, over the past six or eight months, I believe. It used to be close to four, and now it's gone down to about 3.5, which means that people who were budgeting a certain amount based on an assumption of four shekels to the dollar, have lost approximately one-eighth of what they were expecting to have. Suddenly, that money just disappeared into thin air. How does one, first of all, deal with a situation like that? And second of all, how does one plan when one has money in dollars, which you're transferring to shekels, and you can't predict what's going to happen, and therefore you can lose or gain money unexpectedly?
1: So the currency issue is a major issue for Olim, especially in one of two circumstances. One is... If you're continuing to work back home and you're making money in dollars or, you're, for that matter, if you're working here in Israel but your employment or your job or your business is dollar-based. So you have income that's coming in in dollars and you have to deal with that as all importers and exporters need to adjust They need to be able to deal with that basic issue. It's just that the average person doesn't necessarily have like a CFO that's helping them to hedge against the dollar and to run their business. So they really have to kind of step up and say, you know what, I'm the family CFO and I need to plan for this as well. And then the but second, how do you plan
0: for something yeah. which is unpredictable. Okay. And
1: so before I get to that, just and then the second area, the second type of person that also needs to be very, very aware of this is somebody who continues to have all their investments or a large part of their investments in the old country. And that could include retirees who are earning money from their social security or have IRAs or 401ks. In the United States, and they need to be drawing that down to be able to live off of. So they have to be very, very conscious of what's happening with the exchange rate. Nobody can predict what. The exchange rate is going to be tomorrow. If you knew that the exchange rates were going to be moving by even a fraction of a point, and you knew that with certainty, or even not even with like 100% certainty, even if you just had a, a 60% ch- chance or 60% accuracy in predicting that, so then we wouldn't be talking. We here. wouldn't we, have to would be at the Because they would be making truckloads of money in currency trading. So, my personal opinion is that people don't know and we can never know what the rates are going to be. But we have to make basic assumptions and we have to plan. So somebody who's really, really dependent on the exchange rate might need to, first of all, take a little bit of a cushion, more of a cushion in their budget. You can't necessarily budget that you're going to be able to exchange your money at 4.0. And even when it's at 4.0, which is considered to be like a, a relatively high rate, the dollar has ranged between three and a half to four over the last 10 years, with very small exceptions to that where it went a little bit below that or a little bit above that. But that's basically been the range. So you have to take advantage of that range. When the dollar is worth more, it might be time to bring over more of your investments. When the dollar is high, you might be needing to put away a little bit more from your monthly budget for the rainy days, for when the dollar is at 3.5, because you're right, a 12% differential can make a big difference, right? That's 12% less of income. And if you were to say to somebody, I'm going to cut your, your wages by 12%, that would be quite significant. So what you have to do is you have to adjust. You have to like make sure that your budget is not so tight that you're going to feel it too much if the dollar adjusts. And there are more advanced strategies in terms of hedging and buying options. I don't recommend that. The average person can't do that. They really just have to use low-tech solutions to make sure that if I have a 20,000 shekel budget, I can't rely on the fact that the dollar is going to be four and then I'm going to make you know that my 5,000 is going to turn to exactly 20. You have to already create a little bit more of room in your budget so that you can get through the month. And maybe find alternative sources, maybe find alternative sources in shekels that you can supplement.
0: This relates to what you said last time in our previous episode about diversifying and not having all of your money in one country necessarily, perhaps investing in Israeli companies, which will avoid the problem.
1: Yeah, for the investor, so that is very much related to what we talked about last time, which is making sure that you do not have all of your exposure to the dollar. Because nobody knows what the rates are going to be. Right now, the, the rates are around 3.55, right? which is at the lower end of it. And so somebody might make the assumption that, oh, it's got to go up, and I'm not going to convert any of my money as a result. But that might be false, because right now, by definition, the currency is at an equilibrium. There's as many buyers and sellers at this exact point. Do I know that it's not going to go down to 3? Do I know it's not going to go down to even lower? No. No. I'm not necessarily suggesting that I know that the dollar or I think that people have to plan for a two shekel dollar. No, I don't think that they do. And also the Bank of Israel would probably intervene to make they sure it doesn't happen. They would. Uh, Although they are limited also in what they can do. They're very limited in what they can do. speculators out there have the ability to move the currency, especially with a small country like Israel. And with a strong economy, which does strengthen the shekel. And that has also, has been very, very true. It's like the opposite side of the coin where on the one hand, we're so happy that the economy is doing well. But on the other hand, having a very strong shekel really hurts people. And and the shekel has been one of the strongest, if not the strongest currency in the world over the last decade.
0: Something we can be proud of, but difficult for people who live in the United States and who still have money in the United States who want to make Aliyah.
1: Correct. It it does make it more challenging.
0: As well as for exporters in Israel.
1: Definitely makes it more challenging. And, And just like every business has to adjust to that, exporters have to become more efficient. They have to find other markets. They have to be able to compete in more efficient ways. So the same thing on our home front. We have to also say, well, I don't have that money available anymore, and I need to be more efficient. That means I need to cut down on this. I need to be able to do this. I need to uh, to make changes in my budget so that I can then get through the month. So let's get back to Aliyah again and talk about negotiating employment terms. This is a very serious
0: issue when people come to Israel, which can sometimes shock them, I believe.
1: Yeah, I think the average salaried employee – could find themselves in for a very big shock when they're actually negotiating their terms here in Israel on two levels. One is just the basic salary. There's a very large differential in some professions between what you're gonna be earning in the United States or what at least it appears that you're earning in the United States versus what you're earning over here. What do you mean what it appears you're earning? Uh, Okay, so there's a different basis. When you get a salary in the United States or in many countries, all you're really quoted is the gross number. People don't talk about what you're actually making at the end, like the net amount. And so people think, oh, that is my gross salary, and therefore that's what I have to compare it to. So if I'm making $100,000 in the United States and in Israel, I'm only making 50, so I think I'm only earning 50% of that, but it's not actually true because in the Israeli salary, there are a lot of other, what's called call them benefits or hidden benefits that can be a tremendous advantage. Somebody in the United States, just as like a simple example, they won't be saving any money unless they put money away from their salary into an IRA or unless they're contributing to a 401k with their employer, right? So they are getting 100,000, but the 100,000 isn't 100,000 because they also have to pay not only, obviously, taxes, but they have to pay into a savings plans, and they have to pay for that medical insurance like we talked about. But if he's in he, your kids'
0: today's school, your tuition will eat correct. up almost all your salary.
1: But here in Israel, your base salary does not include all the savings that are available. There's a tremendous amount of savings. can be upwards of 30% of your gross salary that is being put away for you on a monthly basis. And so and that's government-mandated? Part of it isn't government-mandated and part of it isn't. There's a government-mandated pension which assures people of approximately 20% of their salary that's going to be going towards retirement. That's tremendous. You know what the average savings rate in the United States is right now? I have no idea. So it's about 8% right now. In the last 15 years, it's probably averaged closer to 5%. That means that the average... in the entire country, of people putting away money is only about 5% of earned money. And in Israel, it is about three times that. That means it's closer to 15% over here. And a lot of that is because of the government-mandated savings plans. And so even though people do complain here, I don't have any ability to, to put away money because I'm making less. It's being put away anyway. It's being put away for you. And that's a tremendous benefit. And then in addition to the government-mandated retirement savings plan, so many, many employers also offer what's called a Karen Histamut, Kernishtromud is like an advanced savings plan. Is this something people can negotiate? It's definitely something that they can Which negotiate. Brings us back to negotiating. A critical point when anybody is negotiating their salary here, you have to know what the benefits are, what the potential benefits are as part of my salary, what the norms are, and then you have to be willing to negotiate. Because employers will, for better or for worse, try to get the best deal for themselves. And they sometimes will push the limits for Olim as well, because they'll say, oh, they, this guy really needs a job. And I know he's got 30 years of experience, but I'm going to really undercut him because I know he needs a job. And they will do that. And you have to really know what the market is holding, what the market is paying, and... Uh, what benefits you should be entitled to or you can ask for. Correct, correct. And, and what the norms are. And, and make some decisions, fundamental decisions, about what you can really accept and what you might need to walk away from. What other shocks are there for a person when he negotiates his salary or employment terms? I think the biggest shock is really the
0: value of the base salary, okay? Meaning on the piece of paper, when you see that number- When you see that gross
1: number, that is a major shock. The other thing for high net worth earners is the tax rates as well. Tax rates in Israel, the marginal tax rates in Israel can get up to the 50% level pretty quickly. Much, much faster than- what the average person in the, in the United States sees. And that can be a big shock. But you have to realize that even though they are getting up to that higher rate pretty quickly, there are ways of structuring your income so that you do have other monies available. And that's partly what I had mentioned earlier in terms of the savings rates, in terms of the Karnishtamut, 10% of your salary is getting put away by these savings plans and so even though you might capital gains tax also go up to the 50 percent rate or not so capital gains tax in israel is at a fixed rate of 25 percent so you're not going to be paying those rates but that's how you actually start to structure your income going forward it could be that you need to be focusing on making sure that you're putting away money and that the monies that you're saving for those large purchases for the bar mitzvahs are going into those savings plans, are being invested in the, in the proper way- Where you can get a lower tax rate. Where you can get a much lower tax rate. Karanishtalmuts are actually the, probably the best savings plan in this country because you're not paying any taxes whatsoever, not on money that goes in and not on money that goes out and not on any of the profits, at least not here in Israel. and Under most circumstances, you're not going to pay taxes in the United States can either. Can you explain exactly what a Talmud is? So. An employer will contribute up to 7.5% of an employee's salary, and the employee matches it with a 2.5%, a maximum 25 So the average company that is offering a Karen Easton would be putting aside 10% of your salary, and that will go away. It will help immediately with reducing your taxes today because you get a certain tax benefit. and then And you're not taxed on that income that's put away. You're not taxed on the income right now. Including what you put in. Correct including what you put in, the money that is earned over the lifetime of a Karen Ishtamut. A Karen Ishtamut has to be locked away for six years. After six years, it becomes liquid, and you can take out the money. You don't have to take out the money, but you can take out the money. And what kind of rate does it earn during that time? It depends on how you invest it. It's a perfectly normal standard investment where you can choose the level of risk from being the most conservative to the most aggressive. But if you know that you're not going to be touching something for another five or seven years, you can afford to take some risk. I believe at least. And as a result, you invest it, you can make money off of that and not pay anything at all when you take it out in terms of taxes here in Israel. We don't have that much time. I want to ask you about another thing. I want to
0: ask about language. When a person makes aliyah and isn't that familiar with Hebrew, how does that affect him? Obviously, it can't be easy.
1: Language is important, I think on on a social level, depending on the community that you move into. Some communities you can get by completely in English and we all know that communities like like Ephrat and like Beit Shemesh and Ramat Beit Shemesh, even areas of Ur, of Yerushalayim, a lot of English speakers and a lot of English speaking services that people can get by without necessarily knowing Hebrew.
0: That's not necessarily healthy.
1: No, no, it's not. And therefore, so acquisition of a language is very important for, for integration, for understanding what's going on, for being able to listen to the radio and to being able to uh, read the newspaper and and be able to communicate with people just on the streets. That's all part of like integrating into the social networks, the social society here. And certainly would reduce your employment prospects tremendously. And then the second issue with the language has an impact is on, on employment. If you don't speak the language, you might be incredibly talented, but unless you really have a job that is focused exclusively in Hutzlaritz, a lot of employers will simply not be able to talk to you. You'll lose, you'll be cutting off a large part of the market because you don't have that language. So So O'Pan is the way to go if someone needs it. If you need it and if you're working in that type of area where you need to acquire those skills. So yeah, O'Pan for a certain period of time is is really important. But I don't think you even need to wait until you come to Israel either. There are a lot of online programs. There are tutors. There are ways to already start acquiring the language. And, And I would encourage people to make an effort to start learning the language even before they come on Aliyah. It will only help you. And then once you're here, Obviously, where you decide to live will have a major impact. If you go into a community where nobody speaks English, you're going to be forcing yourself to speak Hebrew, and it's got a major advantage that you can pick up the language. Obviously, you have to also be able to live in that type of society where you might not have the social network and you might not feel as at home initially. And there's a balance between that. I I once was told when, when we made Aliyah that what's the best way to ensure a successful Aliyah? And the answer was to stay, <laughs> meaning if you can create an environment where you stay, so then that will be a successful LDM because your children will have the language and they will have the culture and they will integrate into society as long as you make it a positive experience and you stay. So you have to like judge what's going to work for you. For some people, they need to be in a more English-speaking environment. For others, they don't need it at all and they want to integrate into society. You have to figure out what really works for you. A balance like everything cool. in
0: life. 100%. Before you mention the importance of negotiating and to also know what things are available. Obviously, people who are coming from outside of Israel don't necessarily know about things like Karen Hish Talmud. I'm sure there are other things a person can negotiate that simply our listeners wouldn't even know about. So if they want to talk to you, they want to get in touch with you about the things they should know when they make Aliyah, how do they reach you?
1: Either through my website, which is www. Labinsky.com, L-A-B-I-N-S-K-Y, or you can reach out directly to our offices, which is 972-2991-0029.
0: And Baruch has also written a book, A Financial Guide to Aliyah and Life in Israel. Again, Baruch, thank you so much for all this information today. Thanks, Scott. You've been listening to Finessing Your Finances with Baruch Labinsky. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is jewishcoffeehouse.com. Make sure to subscribe to this and other great podcasts by going to JewishCoffeeHouse.com.